Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hi and welcome to this month's episode of the Secondary Survey. I'm Viv Ford. I'm Stephen O'Flaherty. And I'm Joe Mooney. This month we decided to record an episode on drowning, seeing as later this month, the 25th of July, is International Drowning Prevention Day. And as we're recording this episode, it is also Water Safety Ireland's National Water Safety Awareness Week. Steve will be going through the mechanism of drowning and Joe will be telling us about the treatment by pre-hospital practitioners here in Ireland. Well, I'll get things started and go through some of the statistics on drowning. Yes, I did pick the exciting part and I promise I won't go too deep into it because I actually can't swim. Uh, it's okay, Viv. In actual <laughs> fact, trying to swim, especially in the first few minutes of entry into the water, can actually be more harm than good. The mantra is float to live. We lie on our back, arms and legs out like a starfish and float till our body relaxes. We'll talk a bit about it later, why that's really helpful. Okay, so I'll get things going. The World Health Organization, WHO, defined drowning as follows. Drowning is the process of experiencing respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in liquid. Outcomes are classified as death, morbidity and no morbidity. Now, for just a little bit of background to the subject, according to the WHO, based on 2019 statistics, there are an estimated 236,000 annual drowning deaths worldwide making drowning the third leading cause of unintentional injury death and accounting for 7% of all injury-related deaths. Children and males, as well as those with increased access to water, are more at risk of drowning. Globally, death from drowning is found across all economies, but low- to middle-income countries account for over 90% of unintentional drowning deaths. Over half of these drowning deaths occur in the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia regions, and are highest in the Western Pacific and are 27 to 32 times higher than deaths seen in the UK or Germany, respectively. There is some uncertainty around the estimates of global drowning deaths. The data around these numbers exclude drownings that are due to suicide and homicide. Numbers of non-fatal drownings in many countries are not readily available or are unreliable. Now, the risk factors for a drowning are age, highest drowning rates are children aged one to four years old, followed by children aged five to nine years old. In the Western Pacific region, children aging from five to 14 years old die more frequently from drowning than any other cause. Gender, males are at higher risk of drowning with twice the overall mortality compared to females and are also more likely to be hospitalized for non-fatal drowning. Increased access to water is a risk, such as fishermen and children living near open water sources. Flood disasters account for 75% of all drowning deaths in flood disasters. Travelling on water, having daily commutes, asylum seekers on unsafe vessels and under the operation of untrained personnel. A few other risk factors are alcohol use near or on the water, medical conditions such as epilepsy, tourists that would not be familiar with local water risks and features. Now, for some information about drowning incidents in Ireland, according to Water Safety Ireland, there's an average of 115 drownings every year in Ireland. Like the WHO figures, males represent the vast majority of drowning deaths, here accounting for 79% of the deaths. 62% of drownings occur in our inland waters. In 10 years, 30 children aged 14 and under drowned. 
8% of drowning happen within the victim's home county and occur quickly and silently. Now, provisional data from 2020 reports that there were 76 drownings, 44 accidental, 28 due to suicide, and four that were either assault, other causes, or undetermined. That's really interesting, Viv, because drowning secondary to self-harm incidents are really becoming a concern for those involved in water safety. And as is in wider society, the incidence of mental health incidents is on the rise, and it's naturally translating into an increase in drowning incidents. Some of the latest stats that I have here is a third of serious marine incidents in 2021 had some sort of connection to mental health or self-harm as a precursor or cause. So it's definitely something that is getting worse and not better, which is probably something that's seen in the greater society. Those numbers are quite alarming, actually, Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, mental health is going to be something that we're uh, becoming a, a greater burden on the health system, uh, uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So moving on now. So, Steve, your new role sees you training maritime search and rescue professionals in casualty care. We thought it fitting that you would talk to us about how and why people drown. Yeah, thanks, Viv. So I suppose drowning per se, it's it's the end point of a continuum resulting in respiratory impairment from a person's immersion or submersion in fluid, which Viv, you've already kind of covered the definition of it. But I suppose, you know, when we talk about immersion, that'll bring uh, any Irish person listening out in a cold sweat from the simple mention of the word. So we'll give a brief pause for people to uh, check their immersion is indeed off. Steve, just to clarify the difference between immersion, I've just checked and mine is off, thankfully, and submersion. If you didn't mind telling us the difference, that'd be great. Oh, dear Lord, this is your classic. Tell us your Irish without telling us your Irish moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Now, all we need now is a bit of flat seven up and we'll be sorted. Um, so, There's all the tales. <laughs> so, Joe, I suppose the main, the main difference between immersion and submersion is, is the... The person's airway is under the water for submersion. So immersion is somebody's in the water, but their airway is clear of the water. And submersion is somebody's in the water, but their airway is under the water. They can't clear their airway of the water. So I mentioned earlier that drowning is the end point. So what happens before drowning, I suppose? So ultimately, you know, when you start a new job, the drowning is very similar. You either sink or swim. And if we sink, there may be a number of reasons why we're sinking. So For example, you might be wearing clothes that would cause you to sink. You may intentionally want to sink. You may have gone under the water and become trapped in something. And there's lots of different things, reasons why you may not be able to swim. You may be unconscious, for example, and you may not be able to clear your your airway of water. And there'll be a point of panic, the kind of fear of drowning. So you'll start to panic. You will fear that you're going to drown. But if you're conscious, you'll be holding your breath. And if you can't hold your breath, you're going to take a breath of water in and that's when the drowning process will begin. Holding your breath is a voluntary mechanism up to a point where your body decides it needs to breathe. And this mostly depends on your pressure pressures of CO2 in your body. So your chemoreceptors measuring the levels of CO2 in your body and to a point the levels of oxygen. And generally, I'm sure anybody who's who held their breath for any period of time, you'll get that period of fight. You'll be fighting the urge to breathe. And you'll get that burning sensation if you keep doing it. And eventually your body will take over. And the problem is, at the same time of trying to hold your breath, you're panicking. You have a fear you're going to drown. And it does little to help your breath holding ability because the panic combined with cold water shock, which we'll mention in a little bit, can cause a fight or flight response, which will increase the metabolic demands of the body, resulting in higher levels of waste produced and oxygen used up quicker. 
and that all combined will depend on how long you can hold your breath for okay and that's if you can hold your breath if you're unconscious you won't hold your breath because it's a voluntary thing to hold your breath so if you're unconscious you generally will naturally lie in a position face down in the water that's how unconscious patients or unconscious people with no life jacket will end up lying or settling if they're floating on the surface of water they'll generally float face down and holding your breath is easier said than done so Viv how long do you think you can hold your breath for there's a joke there but I'll I'll check <laughs> so while Viv is is going to hold your breath let's talk about cold water shock and cold water shock is probably the biggest danger to people in the initial kind of couple of minutes and there's a number of processes happening mainly you have an involuntary gasp of between two or three liters of water air ideally if your airway is above the water but if you're under the water it'd be water followed by a hyperventilation stage where your breathing rate can go up anywhere between 60 to 80 breaths in a minute hypertension and increased cardiac output ideally it's for want of a better word it's a, a free stress test which will become an issue uh, that we might talk about a little later that was about 60 seconds what causes cold water shock steve uh, very good 60 seconds is pretty good so 60 seconds would be nowhere near what you'd get if you're actually in the water because your cold water shock would shorten that quite considerably but in general cold water shock is basically the cold water hitting your temperature receptors in the skin and it's the temperature differential between the two and the higher that differential is the more profound the cold water shock is and, and cold water shock tends to happen anywhere in water less than 25 degrees and is most profound in water under 15, right down to 10. It can get really profound. So pretty much any time you go into water in Ireland, you're going to get this cold water shock. And it causes a fight or flight response, causing your body to gasp, hyperventilate, increase cardiac output, peripheral vasoconstriction and hypertension. It also causes muscle tension, and this increases the oxygen use and CO2 production, which will also affect your ability to hold your breath. And this is all before you even try and swim, which again will increase your metabolic demand. So Steve, how much water can you breathe in before you have a fatal drowning? Yeah, I suppose it's not a simple answer. It depends a little bit on whether it's fresh or salt water. But in general, it's around 22 milliliters per kg, um, which on average works for salt water, works out about a liter and a half of salt water. Uh, would be enough to impair oxygen transfer in the lungs. And then you'll end up with hypoxia and hypoxemia eventually, and then cardiac arrest. So if going back to the gasp can have up to two to three liters, the gasp alone could be enough if your airway is fully underwater, it could be enough to impair your body's ability to get oxygen to the body. Now, the body does have a mechanism to try and reduce the inhalation, mainly by rapid swallowing of water, hence why drowning victims may be at an increased risk of vomiting. I think Joe's going to have a little chat about maybe one of the changes to the CPGs that have come in that might help with that. But it's certainly something that you have to be very mindful of drowning patients that they're at high risk of vomiting and vomiting quite a lot, especially upon rescue, especially conscious casualties who've been rescued and tend to vomit. So generally going back to the thing about Viv being able to hold her breath for about 60 seconds, like that's in air, nice comfortable setting, you know, glass of whiskey, nice and relaxed, happy days. But if I was to throw Viv into 15 degree water, so not only would she be panicking because she can't swim, she'd go into have that cold water shock and all the things that go with that, that fight or flight response. So we're actually going to end up probably with only a breath hold of a couple of seconds, maybe to 30 seconds max if you're really fit and stuff. So if you can't get your airway back above the water within those initial few seconds, 
you're going to have a gasp. So if you manage to avoid the gasp, we've got a couple of other things then coming down the line. So as I said earlier, it's for want of a better word, a free stress test. So if you have any underlying cardiac conditions that you're not aware of, you may become aware of them fairly quickly. And also, we've also got this thing that if you go into the water and you put your face in the water and you manage to hold your breath, so you're you're holding your breath under the water and your cold water in your face. And for anybody who has heard of the diver reflex, so free divers use this quite a lot, you get a vagal response. So the vagal nerve interacts with the facial nerve in your cranial nerves. And what can happen is by invigorating your facial nerves with cold water, you can cause a vagal response, which gives you bradycardia, lowers your metabolic demands. And free divers use this a lot to free dive. So the problem is, we have a fight or flight on one side and we have our vagal response or our rest and digest on the other side. And you have two sides of a coin, basically. You know, if you think of the autonomic nervous system like your brake and accelerator, so you're pressing your brake and accelerator at the same time with your heart in the middle. And the result normally is some sort of arrhythmia. And I think Joe's going to mention the arrhythmias later on. But it's in the first couple of minutes of going into the water, you're at massive risk of sudden death. So they reckon 52% of fatal drownings are actually not drownings at all. They're down to cardiac arrests secondary to either an arrhythmia or an underlying heart condition that's been aggravated because of this cold water shock syndrome. Now, that's all if you sink. If you swim, so if you manage to survive the first couple of minutes, you're going to be swimming. And especially in Ireland or in generally anywhere, you're going to start getting cold. And the longer in the water, you're going to get started getting cold. And the more you swim, the more you're going to get cold and you're going to get a point of swim failure. And swim failure basically is where your muscles aren't getting enough blood supply because your body has a very clever mechanism that as you enter the water, you get peripheral vasoconstriction that to maintain your core body temperature. But the downside of that is if you're not getting blood out to your limbs, they're vital for swimming. So if you don't get blood out to your limbs, then your ability to swim is going to be hampered. So if you're not wearing a life jacket and you start getting cold and you get swim failure, then your ability to stay on the surface of the water is going to be potentially hampered. And they talk about that. If you read any of the literature about drowning and stuff, it's not like in the movies. It's not a big arms waving, splashing around the place. You know, it's somebody swimming and they go down under the water, they might come back up, they go down under the water, they might come back up, and then they're gone. If you talk to any of the lifeguards, they kind of talk about this climbing the ladder in the water. So when somebody's in the act of actively drowning, it's as if they're trying to climb a ladder. But that's a very late stage of that. Generally, when you get to the swim failure, people are just swimming, and all of a sudden then they realize they can't swim, and they go into this, they start panicking and going down the drowning path relatively quickly without notice. Now, if you happen to float and you get past all the swim failure stuff, after about 30 minutes, then we're going to start moving into a hypothermia thing. And the reason I'm kind of covering all these kind of bits and pieces is that it all leads to drowning. Drowning is is the end of this continuum of it's what happens at the end of it. And drowning ultimately is water goes in your lungs and you can't exchange oxygen. But all these things happen that lead to you drowning. And with hypothermia, the big thing with hypothermia is as your core body temperature lowers, your brain is the first thing that's going to cause you problems. You become confused and then you will eventually become unconscious. And it's at the stage of unconsciousness that you're going to be causing problems for drowning. Because as I mentioned earlier, you go unconscious and then if you're not wearing a life jacket, your natural floating position will be face down in the water. And you can't hold your breath because you're unconscious. You start breathing in water 
and uh, you reach a certain point around that liter and a half of water that your ability to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide in your lungs is impaired and you become hypoxic and eventually you go into cardiac arrest and this all happens within a couple of minutes so that's kind of a bit of a, a chat about how people drown and what drowning is i suppose the next thing to think about is what are we going to do if somebody has drowned i think joe's going to have a little chat about that Cheers, Stephen. That's a really good overview of the process of drowning. Thanks, Emilia. So the management of drowning victims can be divided into three phases. The pre-hospital care, the emergency department and the inpatient care. We're really going to look at the pre-hospital care. Our new pre-hospital emergency care council guidelines on drowning is really focused on the rescue breeding and starts with five rescue breaths. This has shown the importance of early oxygenation for patients and then start CPR if needed. The reason for the five rescue breaths is because of ventilations is generally considered the most important initial treatment for victims of a submerged incident. Rescue breeding should begin as soon as the rescuer reaches shallow water or a stable surface. In a review of 2,388 drowning victims from a United States database, no airway device was associated with a statistically significant improvement in survival rates with a good neurological outcome. A bag valve mask ventilation remains a reasonable approach during early care and a pre-hospital transport. So basic is best at the start. Also, if not in cardiac arrest, the most critical role in management of prompt correction of hypoxemia and acidosis. The degree of hypoxemia is often underrecognized. Patients should receive 100% oxygen and should be monitored closely with pulse oximetry and in hospital blood gas analyzation. Consider intubation and positive end expiratory pressure or PEEP with mechanical ventilations in any patient with poor respiratory effort, altered senses, severe hypoxemia, severe acidosis, or significant respiratory distress. This is mostly for our in-hospital colleagues. Ventricular dysarrhythmias, typically ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, bradycardia, and asystole may occur as a result of acidosis and hypoxemia rather than electrical imbalance. Also, a big change is the introduction of the placement of an NG or nasogastric tube in the new clinical practice guidelines. It is a very welcome addition and the reason for this NG should be placed is to relieve gastric distension and allow the lungs to fill into a greater space. So as you can see, there's a lot to think of and to deal with when we have a patient that is drowning or has drowned. And it can be a complex and they can get very sick very quick without meaningful interventions. I suppose, Joe and Steve, we should be mindful of these patients being potentially hypothermic also, as you mentioned earlier, Steve. Most important is handling them gently and to remove them horizontally to reduce the likelihood of hypotension secondary to the loss of the hydrostatic squeeze on their lower limbs. And also, we should withhold medications until their temperature is greater than 32 degrees, double the medication interval times until the temperature is greater than 34 degrees and limit defibrillation to three shocks. The main problem here is that the thermometers that we use in pre-hospital care are tympanic ones and they really don't read low temperatures for us. And it's important for you also to remember that tympanic thermometers are next to useless when introduced into a wet ear. And given we're talking about post-rescue mm -hmm. patients from water, it's a good bet that they will have wet ears. So at minimum, let's try and dry their ears as much as we can, but just be mindful that their temperature may not be accurate. Yeah. Although it's not 100% reliable, it's only about 65% reliable, I think. The Swiss staging system for hypothermia or the revised Swiss staging system for staging accidental hypothermia is still a handy tool to kind of keep in mind as well. Yeah, and I suppose a general rule of thumb is if they're walking, talking, alert and shivering, then they're just cold. But if they're not fully alert, lethargic, stiff immobile limbs, then let's consider hypothermia 
especially if they've been in the water for 30 minutes or more. They're at higher risk of hypothermia then. That's fairly good advice. So as we come to the end of the episode, is there any golden nuggets of advice that you would like to give? Any one or two points that you, you think we should drill home from a learning point of view from this episode? I suppose the most important thing for me would be obviously our own safety at these scenes. Secondly, it would be to determine in the conscious patient if they've swallowed or inhaled a lot of water. Definitely listen to their lungs and have them attend to ED for observation for a few hours in case they do develop secondary drowning. Yeah, it's a good point, Viv, that kind of development of ARDS or respiratory kind of distress after a drowning incident can happen anywhere kind of from 12 to 72 hours after a drowning incident. So anybody who's had potentially breathed in water or swallowed water needs to be assessed in hospital, ideally, for that risk. Regarding kind of golden nuggets, just going back to the vomiting side of things, patients who have drowned, and remember drowning isn't just the fatal drownings. Drowning is anybody that's taken water into their lungs. So the potential is if they have water in their lungs, they're going to have a lot of water in their stomach. So these patients are potential to vomit. So if they're unconscious, airway management is going to be really important. Having suction ready to get rid of any water if they vomit. And just remembering that ventilating them might be a little bit more difficult because you're dealing with potentially higher airway pressures. So if you are using advanced airways, the recommendation is cuffed airways for ventilating with an airway. So the likes of your laryngeal tubes or ET tubes is really important. Yeah, and I think just to bring it back to basics that when you arrive on scene, the five rescue breaths and the bag valve mask until you get more of a flow into the care and you're more settled into the care. I think the bag valve mask and basic airway management is really important for these patients. So that would be my take home point. Yeah, definitely. And just remember two person bagging because you're going to be dealing with probably a Absolutely. Yeah. So that's our episode on drowning done. I hope you've enjoyed it and perhaps picked up some new understanding of what happens during drowning and in the wider kind of water related incidents. Just to remind everybody that this episode will be coming out in July and it's International Drowning Prevention Day on the 25th of July. More information will be found on Water Safety Ireland and the RNLI provides some really good water safety advice as well for anybody getting involved in the water over the summer. So stay safe and thanks for listening and please feel free to share and comment through our Twitter page at Secondary Survey. Take care and stay safe. Bye. Bye. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.